field of evolutionary biology, there's a saying that it's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent. It is the one most adaptable to change. And that is really what today's interview is about. It's about understanding our future, the technologies that are going to be shaping our world, our culture, our economic landscape. And to help us with this, I've asked Kevin Kelly to be on the show today. Kevin is a futurist. He is the senior maverick for Wired Magazine, which he co-founded in 1993. He is also an author of several books, including the one he's going to be talking about today, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. And in today's interview, you're going to hear about the trends that are happening in the next 10, 20, 30 years. You're going to learn how the skills necessary to survive and thrive in this coming modern era are going to change and which skills you should be developing. You're also going to get an in-depth education about what you can do to be on top of these trends, to stay flexible, to stay adaptable so that you don't get left behind. Because like Kevin will tell you, these changes are coming. Whether you like them or not, whether you resist them or not. It's going to happen. He will also be talking to you about which jobs and businesses may be in danger of going extinct, as well as the opportunities that are going to emerge from these changes, from these technologies. We'll also get into virtual reality. I had the chance to experiment with PlayStation virtual reality after I did this interview, and it was incredibly immersive. I highly recommend you go to a Best Buy, look for the Best Buys that are having PlayStation virtual reality demos. Go experience it for yourself. Start to understand and experience the changes that are happening and understand that there are a tremendous amount of opportunities coming your way as well. We'll also get into AI, artificial intelligence, and how so many people are worried about a Terminator style situation where Skynet becomes conscious and takes over and launches nuclear missiles as the as what happened in the movie The Terminator. You'll hear what Kevin thinks about that as well as other concerns that you haven't heard of but you should know about. So without any further ado, please enjoy the interview with Kevin Kelly on the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. Kevin Kelly, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Hey, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this interview since I reached out to your team to set it up. But Kevin, many people will know you as the senior maverick at Wired Magazine and the author of several books, including your new one, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. But you're also the person who kickstarted the quantified self movement. For our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, could you talk a little bit about who you are before we jump into your new book? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I mean, my official business card 
title is a senior maverick at Wired Magazine. I was one of the several co-founders of Wired. I don't work for Wired directly anymore. I just have a title and I do about one article a year for them. But I also run a website called Cool Tools, which is itself an extension of work that I did previously. In the, Before I went to Wired, I worked on a magazine called The Whole Earth Review and The Whole Earth Catalog, which was something that started in the, basically the, the 70s. And it was um, best described maybe as if you can imagine the web on newsprint. We had user-generated content user subscriptions, no advertising, and we ran what you would normally think of as kind of blog reviews and blog articles on newsprint and sent it back to the subscribers who were the users and writers. And Tools was an ongoing extension of that where we did, uh, where we still do today. I work with Mark Feinfelder from Boing Boing. One positive review, one recommendation of a of a useful thing every day, a tool. And uh, the Kickstarter stuff I did was a graphic novel that um, was about robot, robots and angels that I worked on with a bunch of people from Pixar, ILM, Lucasfilm, uh, all here in the Bay Area. And it was trying to anticipate what happens if robots got souls. And that was a lot of fun. It's this huge, huge thing. It's this massive five-pound Almost 500 page oversized pages. It's this is really great, great thing that's available on Amazon. And in, by and large, I have a bunch of other projects that I'm working on all the time. I've had the privilege of being able to kind of invent my own career or life or whatever you want to call it by kind of deciding that I wasn't ever going to be successful, just sort of following things that I was interested in doing. I spent a lot of time in Asia. I still go to Asia a lot. I'm obsessed with Asia. Yeah, your and wife is Chinese, correct? Yes, she is, and my kids are bilingual. So most of my fans actually are in Asia. Most true fans are in China. And I go there a lot, both to see the future that they have in store for us and also to try and capture their past, which is disappearing, which they're bulldozing, basically. So I'm there to capture the past and anticipate the future, and that's sort of one of my current obsessions. But I'm also working with the Long Now Foundation, which I was one of the charter board members, one of the founders, and we're trying to instill, cultivate the perspective of long-term thinking, of uh, working on things at a generational scale, of trying to build things that may take more than your lifetime to complete, and among those, as a kind of icon of that, we're building this clock, 10,000-year clock, clock to tick for 10,000 years. It's in a mountain, inside a mountain in West Texas. And it will be ticking there underground for 10,000 years. And every day for 10,000 years, oh, oh, the chimes will play a different melody, whether anybody hears it or not. And that's the kinds of... of things that I'm interested in, and I'm a college dropout who has been trying to invent his own life. That is awesome, and I'll tell you what I know about you because I'm, I'm a more recent fan, and although I've known about Wired Magazine for years, I've uh, known about your work. I read your excellent article on virtual reality in Wired that came out recently, which I'd love to dive into a bit more, 
but it seems like you were one of the guys who was always interested in the future. In fact, many people say you have predicted it and predicted the internet. And you're also a person who seems that you're with the trends. You've created your own life based on the new rules that keep emerging from technological progress. Let's jump into your book and, and talk about why you wrote it, what it's about, and unpack some strategies and some ideas for people who are out there who are interested in this change, because there is a huge change happening. And we all need to be aware of it, whether we are fighting it, we don't want it to happen. And uh, I know you talk a lot about that. So, so please tell us why you wrote it and what the 12 technological forces are. Yeah, so I wrote The Inevitable in one sense for two reasons. One is to kind of outline the landscape of where we're going in the next 20 or 30 years. It's not the next five years or even the next 10 years. It's a little bit longer term than that. And I identified these trends or tendencies or leanings, these kind of directions. They're more like directions rather than specific products. So while I would say the internet was inevitable and that was kind of a ongoing trend the the twitter was not inevitable that's that's a specific particular product that i can't you can't predict and i don't even attempt to so the telephone was inevitable on any kind of planet but you know the iphone was not so these trends that i'm talking about are forces or principles of that are increasing that that are operating at the kind of high level of a f- overall form rather than a particular product. And so those large-scale things are like cognification. They're all, I use verbs, they're ongoing motion. So there's cognifying, which is to make things smarter. So we're going to be making basically everything you touch smarter in some capacity. That smartness will exceed us in certain dimensions, like your calculator is smarter than you are. You know, uh, the, your robot-driven car will drive better than you are, but it's it's not thinking like a human. It's not human thinking. It's a different kind of intelligence. It's engineered just to drive. And we'll be engineering all these different types of thinking and intelligence. But the, but the, these will affect every aspect of our lives to the extent that the industrial revolution and the artificial power that we made affected everything that we did from our work to to our schooling to to the you know made the cities that we're that we live in and that's all because we harnessed artificial power we didn't have to make things just with the animal power of ourselves or or animals we could use this artificial power so when you drive down the road in your car you are harnessing 250 horses equivalent and and that artificial power can make skyscrapers or you know endless rows of chairs or, or refrigerators that has given us what we have today and now we're going to have artificial thinking artificial smartness and that'll be a second industrial revolution that will affect everything that we make and our that we surround ourselves with and it especially you know our, our jobs our, our our what we do with our time and so that's something that people should be prepared for i think that we're going to be working with these things because they think differently than us that, that a lot of this will be a team complementary where we're you know the best chess player in the world today is not in a human it's not an ai it's a team of humans and ai they call them centaurs 
and the best medical dietitian is not um, an AI and it's not a doctor. It's it's a team of doctors plus AI. And I think we're going to be paid in some senses by how well we work with these artificial intelligences that think differently than us. And they'll be part of – it's like you know, it's like Google searching. Some people are really good at Google and, and, and they know how it thinks and so it's, we know how it works. And so that's one of the skills. So one of the skills necessary going forward is being proficient with these artificial smartness that's coming along in its many different dimensions, many different types. It's not a single one. It's many different varieties, like there's many different kinds of trees or plants. And that's sort of – there'll be many different kinds of animals. There's many different kinds of of AIs. And becoming proficient will be one of the necessary skills – in in a career going forward and there are others and i think the the main one is that we're going to be perpetual newbies we're always going to be new on the block the, the new technology will make us always newbies and so learning how to learn knowing how to learn knowing how to unlearn the things that you have already learned to learn something new forgetting the interface that you knew and learning a new one is that's going to be one of the major meta skills. That's very right. Very meta and also very like counter for how humans seem to be wired. This, uh, this fear of change or this discomfort with change. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it is, can be exhaustive and exhausting. Once you think you've mastered the, a mouse and menu windows thing. And then suddenly it's gone and you have to swipe things and, um, you have to kind of learn another set and what you was very valuable and hard one now is useless. And then two years later, there's another thing that comes along and you have to kind of learn that it can be, it can feel like you're on a treadmill. And I think the way that we're going to, overcome that is is to make it fun to make it joyful to not make it a so much of a chore but make it something that's much more natural and intuitive where uh, and i think that will come from by doing it earlier in our lives where we we understand that there's this this, uh that the kinds of things you're learning have a natural life cycle natural lifespan and then you discard them and take the next thing i think that's that's something will come with practice it's like any kind of exercise that we just have to exercise that, that muscle. Yeah. And to go back to what you were saying before, you're, you said that you can see trends happening. You can see directions, but you can't predict specifics. Like you mentioned Twitter. We kind of knew that eventually people would get together online and communicate with each other, but you couldn't predict that Twitter. And you talked about learning how to learn these skills are not taught. There's no learn how to learn course in college, at least any of the ones that I know of. If I was in college right now, if I was just coming into the world, where would I learn these things? What would I need to do to ensure that I don't get stuck in the dogma of the past, the outdated operating systems, so I could be successful in this future that is, as your book is titled, Inevitable? No, you're actually you're you're right. In fact, I I, I think I would like to actually um, do a search to see if there was any colleges uh, teaching how to learn. But um, there are a couple of courses that I have come across. There was a really good. This is 
you know, really dating. It was it used to be a, a VHS course that was taught to high schools that you could buy for high school students going into college, which taught you how to how to learn, how to learn how to learn. And I even forget what it was called, but there 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 are, there, there are basically out of school is, is you have to learn this out of school. And one of the reasons why actually I like Tim Ferriss's um, stuff because uh, like actually his four hour cook or whatever it's called was actually disguised as a cooking book but it's actually a, a, a really a dissection of how to learn things and he still hasn't really written the canonical how to learn how to learn book but the uh, the answer is, to your question is you have to go out of school to get it because i think there are dispersed around the internet's this and that attempt to teach you that and i do agree with you that it's an essential course that colleges, at least in the freshman level, should be teaching. There are there are critical thinking courses, which is not quite the same thing, but it's also an additional, I think, imperative skill to learn, because we've had to switch from. Uh, and I talk a little bit about in this in the inevitable book, we've gone from being people of the book to people of the screen, and in the people of the book, it's not just about the books. It was the fact that we had a very text based center of gravity that the Western culture kind of revolved around the page and the text on the page from the constitution to, constitutions to scripture to law books and, and, and relying on authorities and experts. And so because uh, the uh, authority had the root in authors and now we've gone to become people of the screen and in the screen it's Nothing is fixed. Nothing is precise. Everything is fluid, vague, incomplete, unfinished, moving, in flux, uh, like Wikipedia, never, never completed. And for every expert, there's an anti-expert. For every author, there's a counter-author. For every fact, there's a counter-fact. And that makes determining what's true very difficult so you need critical thinking skills and this understanding that there's actually a network of that the, the truth is networked and that you can only arrive you can only assemble the truth yourself by relying on things that themselves have support from other things that are supported so you so you have this idea that like page rank in google that that some sites are more reliable because other sites find them reliable that other sites find reliable. And so there is a, a kind of a networking requirement for making something true. And so that's a very different way than relying on a, an author or authority to, to decide what's, what's true. And so I'm just giving this as an evidence of how this new era of screening, what I call screening in the book, where we screen things requires a different process for critical thinking, for understanding what to believe. And I think that's another essential skill that's probably not being taught in colleges or even high school, which people need to acquire. And they tend these days to acquire it by osmosis, by hanging around, but it should really be taught just like we teach reading and writing. It's a very deliberate thing. You have correction, you have practice and i think we may need to teach some of these things in in that deliberate way yeah and i don't know if 
I, well, I know I'm biased. I don't know if you are. You mentioned that you're a college dropout or you dropped out of school. You didn't specifically say college, but I am too. I, I got into college. I had some things that kind of caused me some personal tragedies actually that caused me to leave. But I'll tell you, Kevin, I feel like it gave me an edge because instead of, like you said, learning from authors and authorities, I had to go find the answers myself by pattern recognition and putting things together to get results. I'm a personal trainer. So it was critical that the people who worked with me actually got results. And while you may learn exercise physiology and biomechanics and all those other fundamental sciences, which are great in school, putting them all together to create a result in the real world, I feel like I have an edge over the people who are more formally educated. Do you feel like your educational path, since it was more self-directed, gave you an edge as well to create your own life, create your own career like you have? I'm not sure that necessarily gave me an edge. And by the way, yeah, I, I was a college dropout and I went one year and then never went back. But I think that, you know, in all honesty, I think this was in the early 70s and that if, and, and at that time, there were no such things as gap years and there was no such thing as interns and there was no such thing as kind of project-based learning. And I think if all those had been present I might have finished. I left because my way of learning was project oriented. I'm, I'm, my life is a series of projects. In before, when I was in middle school, high school, I did projects of my own, and so I learned by in a project-based learning, and that's actually become a little bit more in vogue now, both in high schools and colleges where they have. You know, teams of people trying to work on things, and that's what I needed. And 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 it's possible that had, you know, I gone to college thirty years, forty years later, I it would work for me. It's just that at that time, that was not an alternative. What basically it was you you went into grade thirteen and fourteen, you sat in big classrooms with chairs, and you had the teacher give a dumb lecture, and and I, and I just could not take any more of that. And so I really needed to go to graduate school. And, and if I'd gone to graduate school, I would have I would have graduated. So it's not that I think that I had an edge. It's just that that I did come to it. I, I did think differently about it, and I I had more of what um, later on when I was at Wired, when I was looking for the uh, hiring people, the thing that I was looking for was not their educational background, it was their experience. It was not even their skills. It was their attitude. So. Those are the things that I gained at that time by not going because I gained experience and I had an attitude of learning on my own, which were turned out to be much more essential and much more valuable, even to employers, although I was not I was basically unemployable. And so when I was hiring, that's what I was looking for. I, I paid zero I, I didn't even look at what their education was. I cared about what kind of experience do you have? What is your attitude? How well do you learn? And because because we're starting something that has never been done before, we're we're going to do an online magazine. Wired invented the click through ad banner. We we invented all this stuff, and so that's what we needed. There was nobody who had a degree in online marketing or whatever because none of that existed. So neither did the experience of that. But having some kind of experiences with something 
was more valuable than just being in a classroom. And so I think what I got out of that was not necessarily an edge, but a, a, a difference. And I think difference is the, the main engine of success in, in, in this new economy. Good. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to motivate anybody to drop out of school per se, but I was just trying to get a perspective and perhaps share something that a share a perspective that maybe they're not around enough because so many kids, it seems like they come out of school expecting that it is efficiently educated them to be successful. And you see like every election year, they get up and talk about why aren't there more jobs? And, you know, you've created your own job, your own path. I've created mine in a very different field, but yet, you know, the same creation of your own path. So interesting to get your perspective on that. I'm curious, there's a quote that I read in a book. They actually quoted Peter Drucker, although the, the book is by someone else. And I'd love to get your opinion on it. And Peter Drucker said, in a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it is likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. And for the first time, they will have to manage themselves and society is totally unprepared for it. Yeah. So he used to, Drucker used to talk about the executive function and the executive function, as he described it, as I understand it, was that the industrial revolution trained people to do, to do a job right, to, to perfect, you know, to kind of like make it as excellent as possible to do the job right. But the executive function is to make sure you're doing the right job. Right. Okay. And so that executive function used to be the job of executives. But what's happened is that because of the flattening of society brought about by communications, the organizations are very flat now. And then even every, basically every employee has to make these executive decisions about doing their right job. It's no longer just doing the job right. You have to decide what you're going to do, which is executive function. And so that has been pushed down. And that's why he's saying this, we're unprepared because making those kinds of decisions about deciding what you're going to do is a lot more difficult than just doing it well. And so that sense, and it's not just for people who are like me who are freelancers, but it's even people within organizations because of the flattening, they have to make more executive decisions. They have to decide what they're going to do, not just how they do it. And that is a, a big challenge because, as he says, you know, we haven't really been educated to, to, to make those. And so that's why even if you work in an organization, you're still requiring some of the skills of a freelancer of, in terms of, of an owner or of an executive of actually having to decide – what job to do rather than just doing it well. Yeah. And great point. I, I wasn't familiar with that part of his perspective on things, but to get your view on an even more everyday occurrence, I mean, I'll, I'll use my, my area as an example. So people say that they don't have time to exercise. Then you're like, okay, well, 
what's your day look like? And well, I'm on Facebook because I was arguing with someone because they wanted to vote for someone I don't agree with. Or I was on Instagram looking at some cool pictures. And then I got to watch Game of Thrones because the season finale is coming out, but I don't have time to exercise. And we're in this world, you know, and I'm a content producer. I'm trying to make good stuff that stands out, but we're in a world where it's becoming increasingly more difficult to make decisions about what is going to help us achieve our goals. And you see people getting sucked down different roads of perhaps entertainment or infotainment and not focusing on what matters. Can you talk about like your perspective on that? You know, going back to the kind of the things that we would like to be teaching in school, besides these meta skills of learning how to learn and critical thinking, what I call techno literacy, how technology actually works. I think a lot of the the most essential things in the lower grades is actually not knowledge, because I think we're coming to a world where if you want an answer, you ask a machine. Answers are cheap. You know, it's like having calculators. If you're connected to the internet, you don't need to memorize this stuff. You can just ask it. And But what becomes really more and more important is kind of uh, teaching character skills. And of that, one of those is, is you know, self-discipline, the marshmallow test. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where they give kids a, a marshmallow. So delay gratification. Delay gratification. Uh, yeah. And just showing how important it is in a very early age to to teach those kinds of skills. And I think what we'll also come to see, we're in, you know, the social media is less than 2,000 days old. It's just like, wow, it's just an infant. We don't even know really how it works yet. We don't really know how to manage it. We don't know how to teach it. We don't know how to control it yet. It's just, it's just a baby. So it may take another generation before we completely understand it so so the the etiquette the mastery of it i think is still ahead of us as we learned well you know it's sort of like it's like sugar like you know you know then we say we realize oh no you can't have all the sugar you want you have to kind of like ration it you have to you have to manage it and so right now we'll come to see that well okay you know part of being an adult or part of growing up or part of um, managing your life is that you ration these things here and there and that's sort of part of what you have to do so right now there's i think we're just ignorant about a lot of this stuff and it may take another 2000 days for us to get better at it and i think also some of the skills that will take to manage technology should be taught in school in the same way that we teach reading and writing. I think they have to be deliberately taught with practice and correction, just like you would if to learn. You can't learn reading by hanging around the library. Yeah, you actually have to be taught it and can't learn calculus by hanging around textbooks. You have to be taught it. And so there may be aspects of technology that we actually have to teach. Yeah, very, very important And I know we've been focusing a lot on college and school and kids growing up, but what would you say, I want to ask you this question, then I'd love to get into AI and and, uh, virtual reality, but what would you say to a guy who's in his 30s, 40s, 50s, who sees the change happening in the world and is a little frightened that maybe his job isn't as secure or maybe what he thought about how the future would be is 
as secure. I mean, in one way, it's a very exciting time with new breakthroughs, exponential technology. But in another time, it's, whoa, everything's changing so fast. Artificial intelligence, you know, these the virtual reality, these all these things that are happening. What would you say to someone to help them get with the changes? It's a really good question, a very solid, pertinent question. And it's a significant challenge because, you know, some guy who has a job and he has a mortgage and he has kids and through no fault of his own, it's not even a direct, it's not like suddenly he's confronted with AI. It's that there's AI happening in the back offices that will affect the company he's worked for and maybe the company no longer has a competitive advantage. And so there's this kind of indirect way where the company itself has nothing to do with AI, but it can be affected by AI. And and so suddenly his his livelihood is gone. So what do we say to that person? And And I think this idea that, kind of referring to what you're saying before, they have to actually be pretty proactive in try in, in kind of becoming flexible. Be- I mean, kind of like one of the reasons why I travel is to keep my mind flexible. And many people in middle age are kind of in routines and they have things set out and it's the idea of kind of like learning a new something or going to school is almost unthinkable. And they're kind of, really focused on just kind of the day-to-day, but that, as you rightly point out, a lot of their day does have discretionary time that they can choose to do something else, but getting them motivated to anticipate some of this stuff is really difficult. And they're not going to do that kind of like until they're forced to. And I understand that. That's, That's sort of human nature. There's some people who are more inclined to look to the future or to anticipate these things and others who are kind of like, they're going to do it kicking and screaming and only in desperation. I feel the same way about like upgrading stuff. It's like, I haven't upgraded my Mac in years. It's like, I don't want to upgrade because I know that if I upgrade, it's like, it's like I'm going to have to upgrade everything. So I'll do it kicking and screaming and other things. Yeah. I'll upgrade on a more regular basis, but it's, it's hard to, kind of upgrade your life like that. And I think the thing is, is that I think we should recognize that there are going to be people who are going to only come to it at the last minute, but that we can have programs for them ready and knowing that they're going to wait to the last minute and try and help them be, be retrained. And I, and I am a, and I think it was actually Tim Ferriss and others have shown that I think we're a lot more malleable than we think, even older in age, although it's much harder when you're older, I still think we can change our habits. It's hard, and we can change our mind. It's hard. We can change those. It's, it's harder to do it, but we, it is possible. And I think I'm not somebody who thinks, well, there are people who just simply are never going to to change. I think everybody is capable of change. Yeah, and right, neuroscience, neuroplasticity is shown that had a MIT neuroscientist on the show before she was talking about that ability that we have to change our brains, but great answer, right? It's, it's about keeping that mindset and staying young in your mind and doing things. You mentioned travel and I'm sure all the experiments that you do and guys like Tim Ferriss, I'm a huge fan of Tim's, it keeps you adaptable and, or, or 
able to adapt to new changes because you're just around novelty so much. Very, very cool. Let's talk about something maybe a little bit lighter. You wrote an entire thing on virtual reality. I have yet to try it. I went to Best Buy the other day to try it out the PlayStation VR because it's the easiest one to, to go to. But you've been to The Void in Utah. You've also experimented with the, the Vive and the Oculus. Can you talk about VR and what your experiences are, what you think about it? So, yeah, I, I did spend about five months trying all the existing commercial units, the prototypes, stuff in the labs, the content, the hardware, you know, as many different aspects as, as, of this emerging industry as I could. And I came away with believing that it's very real because I had an earlier experience in the 80s with VR and I was equally um, uh, impressed at that time, and I thought it was going to happen, thought it in terms of the widespread adoption of it was going to happen a lot faster. It, it did not happen back in the 80s. It's basically, the short answer is it was just too expensive. The, the, those rigs back then, even though they were pretty high quality, cost really basically in today's dollars a million dollars. And so they were just too out of reach. They were still, and they required a lot of technological, techno support people who were really they were sort of like um temperamental they're they're very complex and they and they just wasn't um off the shelf cheap enough now it is smartphone technology which is really the basis for most of the vr in terms of the tracking the video processing the screens that you have in your eyes these are all basically stolen borrowed from smartphone technology. So that's now a commodity and that makes VR now finally a commodity and it'll only get better. And that's the important thing is that it's good enough now to improve quickly. And so um, what I came away with was understanding that we're changing the nature of the internet from the current mode where it's about knowledge and information you go there to learn things, to see things, to read things, to watch things. It's sort of all happening kind of at the front of our minds. But the virtual reality had a new currency, which was uh, more around experiences, which you feel. You're, they're felt. They're not things that you watch. You, you go into VR and you come away with having experienced something. And it kind of works in a different part of your brain and because of that. What you learn in there is you learn differently. What, what, what you feel, you feel differently. And so um, I was surprised by that because we tend to think of virtuality as stuff that we see, but it turns out that all these additional senses of, of having tactile gloves, things that you feel, smell if you can, but hearing especially, all these other additional senses, again, they operate on a different part of your brain than the kind of front part where we watch stuff. And so while the resolution and seeing things is very important, the sense that we have of presence, of being immersed in a different world, of having something virtually there, are all coming from different, a much deeper, different, primitive part of our brain. And because of that, I think this is extremely powerful where 
experiences become the currency. So you download experiences, you share experiences, you purchase experiences, you sell experiences. When you learn it's an experience, you know, you experience colleagues in a teleconferencing. This is a very different grammar than the grammar of knowledge and information. And so while we tend to think of, well, we have an experience in a movie, well, well, this is nothing compared to what happens when you have a full 3D virtual reality experience because it's operating on a different part of your brain. This is the part of the brain that says that this is present is, is not the front of your brain. It's, it's, it's a different part. And so I think what we can expect is that um, there's a whole new platform that's as big as the internet that's coming where there are no experts right now. Everything is open. Everything's brand new. And like AI, there's tons and tons of opportunities because nobody knows how this really works. I mean, literally, we, we, we don't even know physiologically how the brain does this, to assemble this sense of, of reality. And so it's a great opportunity. It doesn't mean everybody's going to succeed. There'll be huge numbers of failures as people try stuff that, do, that doesn't work. But it does mean that the most important products, the most important services, the most important inventions for this have not been invented yet. And so I think this is a great opportunity for anybody who wants to, to make something new that potentially could really have an impact. That is, we're not even day one of, of, of VR. It's, it's just beginning. It's, the way to do it, I think, is very, very simple. You can't go to school for it. What you have to do is you have to buy a rig, start making stuff, fooling around with it, trying stuff. Because that is by far the, the, the best way to, to get ahead. You can't, you can't study this. You can't read about it. You can't go to school. You can't even get hired to learn it because no corporations have it. It's, this is a matter of like you doing it. That's it. Wow. Very cool. And I want to be one of those people. I am a exercise guy, fitness guy, health guy, and I can't wait to get a rig and experiment with it and see what the potential is. And for anyone else who's interested in purchasing a, a VR rig, what would you recommend? The Vive, the Oculus, something else? Right now, the consensus is that the Vive is the thing to get more than the Oculus, more than the PlayStation. From from everybody I know who has spent a lot of time in the current release models. So there's more coming. There's the Meta, there's the Magic Leap, the HoloLens, but 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 they're behind in terms of their their releasing. So as of today, right now, the rate to get is is the Vive. You have to be prepared for this is early adopter stage. This is not quite like you pull it out and don't have to think about it. This is not like an iPhone. There'll still be some hacking, and particularly if you are going to try and make things. So it's not like you're going to buy an iPhone, you're going to download a bunch of apps. No, no, this is closer to you're getting an Apple II, and you're going to have to, to, to be an early adopter and be at ease with hacking stuff or else working with somebody who is, which is what I would recommend is to have a partner who is, if you're not that person, which I'm not, comfortable in kind of, you know, tending this, these beta, basically these are still beta versions of stuff. Interesting. Um, 
So yeah, you, you, I don't want to mislead people to think that yes, you can buy it off the shelf and set up, and it will work. But to do something with it again, other than just to run the current app, which is fine, but if you're going to actually try and, and you know uh, advance the the conversation, try stuff, you, you have to. There will be some technical. What's the word I want? There'll be some technical force necessary to kind of maintain this system. Interesting. Well, I just want to play and, and report on it. I'm not sure I'm okay. quite there trying to uh, progress the technology or whatever, but it's I'll keep that in mind as things progress because you never know what's going to happen in, in this world. And Kevin, we have five minutes left. I know you're a busy guy. You have other appointments to attend to, but I'd like to finish off with one question. And it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Elon Musk keeps talking about the rise of the machines and how AI is going to come to consciousness and Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity. What can you say about some of the fears that are unfounded and versus what will, some of the things that perhaps people don't recognize? And I know that's probably a long answer, but in the time that we have left, we would love to hear your perspective on that. The possibility of the AI taking over is very, very remote. It's not zero. You know, it's not very much more than zero. It is maybe something we should be in the long term concerned about, but we shouldn't be worried about it at all. In the short term, we should be not worried about it at all. I think there are some other worries. If you want to worry about AI, there are some other concerns that are much closer and, and much realer, which is AI systems, machine learning systems are so complicated right now that they actually do come to decisions that we don't know how they arrived at. And sometimes they may come to decisions that we may find objectionable and they may make, for instance, they could be racist, could uh, be prejudiced against um, people. And we would find it very difficult to understand why, because you can't see the inside of their the, the logic. So, and, and these are kind of things that, you know, say like they're giving uh, their AI that does mortgages. And so maybe, you know, what if they were racially biased? Well, how, what do you do with that? That's a, it's a paradox right now. So those are some of the, and, and these other ethical issues about self-driving cars, you know, who do they favor? Should they give priority to the safety of the passenger versus say other drivers or pedestrians? These are real concerns that we have right now. And there are people working on it, but we collectively should be involved in those conversations. And so that's something real that if you wanted to worry about it. But I think in general, the real worries about AI we kind of hinted at already are um, <clears throat> are dealing with people whose current tasks could be replaced by AI. And they may be unprepared for it because it's not just physical tasks. It's a lot of knowledge work, like, like a mortgage broker or paralegal going through uh, evidence that lawyers are all can be done by AI and are being done by AI is better. There are a lot of white-collar jobs. I say any job that can be specified in terms of efficiency, you know, output per hour or something, quotas, anything that has a specification of efficiency is a job that potentially will go to the bots. And what humans are really better at are things that are not efficient. We're really good at wasting time in terms of like exploring trying stuff. That's what science is about. It's inherently built on failure. Innovation is all requires failure, which is inherently inefficient. Art is inefficient. Human relationships are inefficient. All these things are not specified in efficiency. So efficiency and productivity is for robots. So if you have a job that is in any way 
being measured or counted in terms of how efficient you are, that that is a role that can go to the bots. And I think that's probably a closer concern. But uh, having said that, I think what's going to happen is is that this kind of automation, this assisted thinking, this artificial smartness will create far more new roles, new tasks, new jobs that we want done. And that if you're flexible and willing to change, that there will be far more opportunities in working with AIs than being replaced by them. And so, but you have to be kind of willing to change. And if you are, that there'll be entirely new categories of things to do. Just as, you know, if we gave her the pink slips to the farmers 150 years ago, told them, you know, 70% of Americans were farmers, basically none of them would be farmers now and they would say well what are we going to do and you'd say well you'll be web designers you know you're going to do a mortgage broker <laughs> yeah that would be like what you know that, that makes no sense to them and a lot of these new jobs don't make sense to us right now because we didn't even know that we wanted this thing before and there'll be so many of these new jobs by the way personal trainer would have been one that would just baffled the uh, the farmer back then and so I think that if you're willing and flexible, there are going to be so many new opportunities, new roles, new things that, that humans want done. Because in the beginning, they aren't going to be efficient. When we first do them, we have no idea what, what needs to be done. And so all these new things like VR Wrangler, VR World Builder, you know, I don't know, VR Trucker for that matter, they, we don't know what they are. So they're not efficient. So, so humans do them. And our overall destiny basically is humans are going to invent jobs that robots that we can give the robots later on. So, so we're constantly inventing things that then we will learn to routinize and then give to the bots. But our initial thing is to invent them the first round. So we're all going to be inventing new jobs, and that's sort of the fun part. I think it's going to be an exciting time. I'm really looking forward to it. I really thank you. Ted, for your great questions, that's what humans are, are better at than robots. You're not a robot. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much. It, that was a great ending, a powerful ending to a fascinating interview. And I will have your links up if you'd like to share something now. But I, man, I would love to have you back on to talk about maybe the future of fitness or medicine, how it's going to be affecting the, our, these technologies, virtual reality, AI, sensors, big data, et cetera. It's going to be affecting uh, our health and in our physicality, perhaps. But thank you so much. And is there anywhere where you'd like people to go to learn more about you? I'll have the Amazon link up to your book on the show notes, of course, but anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I have a page on my website for The Inevitable, which is, my website is, my initials kk.org is the website. My email has been public for 30 years. You can find it there. I'm Kevin Tukelly on Twitter. But the website, kk.org, has most of my stuff, and there's a page there. By the way, it also has translations of the book in case um, you speak another language. And I, again, I, I'm very grateful for your attention. I hope readers enjoy the book, and thank you again for having me on. Kevin Kelly, thank you so much for your knowledge, your wisdom, and most importantly, your time. What 
a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I know it wasn't about health and fitness or mindset or any of those things that we typically talk about, those areas that we typically talk about on this show. But in the same vein, it's something that is happening to our world. It's happening now. And in this takeaway, the TED's takeaway section, I want to talk about the five biggest lessons I thought that I got from listening to Kevin and speaking with him. And the first one is changes are inevitable. The the changes that he's talking about, they're inevitable. There's no stopping them. You could try to protest. You could try to kick and scream. You can be the last person who gets with the program, but there's no stopping it. It's kind of like stopping the car, right? The people who tried to stop the the car because they wanted to keep using horses and buggies. There's just no stopping it. And, And people have been trying for a long time. And I hope you're a person who embraces this future. And I want you to be a person who embraces the future because there can be a lot of good that comes out of technology. It has to do more with how we use it than the technology itself. So understanding and accepting the changes that are happening. Number two is preparing for the future. Don't be a person who hears about self-driving cars and hears about perhaps your job, your business will be in danger, but no, you're fine. You're just going to keep doing business as usual. You've got to prepare for the future. And the ways I'm going to suggest to you are by listening to interviews with people like Kevin, reading Kevin's book, staying on top of the trends, and also understanding which skills that are going to be important for the future, right? And he talked about the skills, the meta skills, learning how to learn, learning how to unlearn because things change so quick. We're going to have to be more flexible. An example right out of my online business, Facebook is pretty hot, right? But it may not be hot. So learning all about Facebook to market my business and to connect with all the people who listen to the show and my friends, it's the place to be right now, but it may not be the place to be. And you have to understand that. And when you have that mindset, when something changes, like, hey, nobody's on Twitter anymore. We're all on Snapchat, right? Everyone's on Snapchat right now. You see everybody's profile picture with the little Snapchat logo and a picture of them in the middle of it, the the ghost. Understanding things are going to be progressing like that. And that's going to be a more regular occurrence. So it's up to you to learn how to switch gears quick, not to try to hold on to the past and tell people, you know what, I'm going to keep on, I'm going to stay on Twitter because that was a good platform and I don't understand these crazy kids with the Snapchat. Don't be like that. Don't be the person with the other five people who are left on. And and I'm not saying anything's wrong with Twitter or that it's going that direction, but I'm saying any technology, don't be the last person who don't be one of those late adopters. And uh, even Simon Sinek talked about this in his start with why book, right? The law of diffusion of innovation. When 
big screen TVs came around, there were people or cell phones, there were people who had to buy a big screen TV or LED screen or whatever. I'm not super familiar with the technology instead of tube televisions because they stopped making tube televisions. You don't want to be that person who has to change simply because the world isn't making what you use anymore, right? You don't want to be like that. Number three is understanding which jobs and businesses are in danger. The number one job in America, I believe, is truck driving. And I know there's some some drivers who listen to this podcast while you're driving around doing your job. Understand self-driving cars are coming. They're maybe 10 years away, 15, 20 years away. Don't expect to retire as a truck driver, as a driver. Start to get more, start to look outside of what you're doing, right? And he talked about also mortgage brokers. And he said something critical. Efficiency and productivity is for robots. We're going to value humans for making the decisions that having the skills that robots simply don't have. Like Kevin gave me that nice compliment that I am not a robot because robots aren't good at interviewing people because they don't have curiosity. Okay, that's that's important. So understanding which jobs and businesses are in danger. And I remember when computer programmers started getting their jobs outsourced in the United States. I was pretty young at the time, but I remembered seeing it and everybody was fighting and protesting and trying to stop it. And whether you agreed with it or not, and opening up you know, globalization of the workforce and, and hiring people in other countries, which I actually think in, in a way it could be better for the world. Anyway, you know what? I'm not going to even say that because I know there's going to be some people who probably disagree with that, but that happened and there's no going back because it was just more cost effective for businesses. And we could argue about that, but it happened, right? And now robots Artificial intelligence are going to be taking jobs. They're going to be driving cars. And don't be one of those computer programmers who just thought they had it made. And by the way, there are still computer programmers employed here in the U.S. They're just more specific, right? They're more niche. They're higher quality, perhaps. And um, and and I'm sorry if that's a terrible analogy. Analogy if you happen to be a computer programmer and you're like, Dad, you got that all wrong. I'm just trying to paint the perspective that it's important to understand where things are going, the trends that are happening, and don't be taken by surprise. The fourth one is how to keep an, a flexible mind as you grow older. I, I gotta say. I felt like that was happening to me for a little while in my 20s, in around my early 30s, actually. So my late 20s, early 30s. And I felt like the world was getting away from me a little bit. People were watching shows and doing things and on social media. I, I took a while to get on Facebook. Now I'm on there a lot. And uh, it, I felt like the world was getting away from me. And and I wasn't keeping a flexible mind. I was like, oh, what is going on with this crazy world and this technology? And what the hell is a Facebook? And you got to stay flexible. And one of the ways to do that, that Kevin said that I've talked a lot about and, and I love is to travel and make sure you're learning new skills, traveling, exposing yourself to new things, trying new things. And as I mentioned in, in the intro, 
I have gone and experienced some virtual reality. I went to the PlayStation demo here at Best Buy, which is literally like a block away from where I live in Miami Beach, and or a couple blocks, whatever. And I went and tried virtual reality, and it was incredible, incredibly immersive. And I'm still like thinking about it, even though I only spent maybe 10 minutes playing around with it. I'm going to go back again and play around with it some more. Make sure you keep a flexible mind. Make sure you go after experiences. Make sure you look to expand your horizons, get out of your comfort zone and do things that you normally wouldn't do to keep your mind flexible. And the fifth one is that the concerns that most people have about the future are not really what you should be worried about. A lot of people are afraid of the rise of machines and a Terminator situation with Skynet launching nuclear missiles. And and Kevin said, you know, that's not the real danger. Is it a possibility? Sure, but not a likely, not plausible situation. The other concerns are self-driving cars. He talked about, is the self-driving car going to prioritize the driver? Is it going to prioritize other drivers or pedestrians? What about the prejudiced AIs and perhaps racist? And uh, I'm using air quotes right there because it can an AI be racist? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a strange thought to think. But when you're Listening to interviews with Kevin, you become more informed. You become more educated. You start to understand the real issues instead of what's being put on in the media. The media just promotes such garbage and nothing, things that keep you afraid, but don't really tell you how to deal with the situations or what the real issues are. So make sure you're educated. Make sure you stay informed and go check out Kevin's book. I'm going to be reading it because I asked for an autographed copy. I think that's really cool to get autographed copies from some of the guests that I've had on the show. So I'll be doing an update about, but if you read his book and you have some feedback on it, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this Ted's Takeaways and I'll talk to you on the next episode.